Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Wes Blakesley, and you're in the AGD podcast series. Today, we're going to discuss a new concept for color selection with Bob Ingracio, who formerly owned the full-service dental lab. Very excellent lab, by the way. Bob is proposing a yeah. paradigm shift in choosing a shade, as we call it, which I think you'll find very interesting. Bob, good to have you back with us. It's great to be here, Wes. It's been a while. So I'm very excited about this because one of the most difficult tasks in, in dentistry is actually choosing the shade or color uh, for our patients in the anterior region especially. But uh, I'll just start by asking you a question because we've known each other for a long time. Uh, and, and it's simple. After 35 years in dentistry, and you're working as an owner, a manager, and a, and a lab technician, why would you consider starting a new dental company now? Well, over the years, I, there was so much I wanted to do and share, I should say, that um, just couldn't do it from the bench. So once I uh, decided to leave the lab side of things and, and get started in a new venture, um, I started focusing on certain uh, technical tasks, procedures that could be done in a dental office, actually should be done in a dental office, but uh, they aren't or they're not done quite right. And so today I thought I'd focus on one of those tasks being the uh, color selection process. So when we look at that, the first thing that occurs to me is some of the things that are wrong with our existing system. Um, so let me start from the beginning. I think that identifying the decision maker is, is, is basically the most fundamental place to begin because it's not always the patient. And we hear so much about patient acceptance and the patient this and the patient that. Let's find out who the decision maker is. And then we wanna make sure that we explain uh, what the expectation, create the expectation uh, for when they get their final crown or tooth as I would like to refer to it. Um, and then also choosing our words appropriate. You know, why is this so important? <clears throat> because we need to understand the various, uh, the variables involved in the color selection to be able to com uh, effectively com communicate. Without understanding the basics, it's really impossible. Um, most color managers would find it difficult to explain exactly what they're doing. And if they can't, you know, they stand little chance of controlling their patient's expectation, which is what they need to do. Bob, where is the greatest need for improvement in the color selection process? Well, hands down, training. Uh, you know, when we look at all the technological advances in digital cameras, lighting, software, uh, not to mention the amount of scientific knowledge just in the last couple of decades, uh, I think we need to transfer the scientific knowledge, all this information we have, into simple training and coaching modules that a dental employee can learn and execute confidently. So that would be my primary answer to training. Okay, can you share with our listeners how to apply a simplified step-by-step -step approach to shade selection? Uh, absolutely. So when the receptionist or treatment planner is talking with the patient uh, and, and discussing the scheduling of them to come in for their color selection. This is when they wanna say, uh, is there someone uh, that you really trust like a spouse or a close friend that may be involved in the final decision of the color? Uh, if it's you, fine. If, if there's someone that you think uh, you're gonna rely on, we need them to be present. Okay, so right from the beginning, 
we're taking control of this whole process. So now when we get to that appointment um, and the decision maker is there, the education process, a good way to start it is to make statement, a good statement is, uh, you know, none of our teeth really match. They're, they're, um, they're all different colors. And, you know, how do we know that? If you've ever seen anybody that just had a brand new smile done, typically patients will tell their de dentist, I want white teeth. So, but when every single tooth is the exact same color, we know it doesn't look natural. So that's a good way to explain why teeth aren't the same color. So this leads us to the next most important point is explaining that it's a harmonious uh, look that we want. And to get that, um, you almost have to be at an arm's length. Um, and that's how we can see if that tooth looks like it belongs there. So whether we're doing a front tooth, back tooth, uh, multiple teeth, that's the way to, to start setting that expectation. All right, let's, Bob, I wanna take a pause here because I think you made a very important point about harmony. And I want you to expand that for the listeners. Sure, uh, Wes, uh, harmony is a, a relationship of various components existing together without conflict or disruption to one another. So in, in restorative dentistry, um, when you have various colors and shapes of teeth arranged together, they look natural and that gives us that harmonious feeling and, and effect. So I guess that's the simplest way to put it, which reminds me, I, I, I don't like the term of telling a patient we're gonna make a shade selection appointment or a color match appointment. Uh, you know, maybe we should choose our words a little, a little more carefully. How about, you know, like, uh, your color harmony uh, selection, you know, just, it's all about the words we use, getting, getting that education for what they're gonna expect when, they, when that crown is done. Okay, thanks for that. Let's go back to the step-by-step -step because I think that's, that's the meat here. Okay, so another aspect of a, of a color, matri uh, color matcher's responsibility is as they're explaining and literally taking, uh, the, the, the color that they need, they, they will determine the degree of importance the color matcher or patient is placing on the end result. Some patients are really focused on a single first or second molar, and we've remade many of them because the occlusal surface did not match. So it's not always that single central. Once we get an understanding, typically if they brought someone with them, they're probably interested in, in the results. But if we see that they're really more interested in the function and that's not a big issue, we know it's gonna be a very short appointment. So we're trying to control our time. As much as we can learn that we can take the leadership and control of, the better off we are. Okay, uh, Bob, I know bias can play a role in communicating with patients. How do you address bias that a color matcher or the color matcher might have? Well. Bias in all of this, its forms is probably impossible to, to change. It's almost impossible to, to define. Sometimes there's little hidden biases we don't even realize we have, but uh, there's a few general rules. If we're trying to explain and establish an ex expectation of the patient, um, we certainly wanna be aware of the body language that we use and that we see, words we hear, so we want to be really aware of what's going on in the office. Furthermore, we want to be aware of what our coworkers are saying. 
What's the dentist saying? You know, one thing I, I learned about uh, body language and learned about bias and, and words, it all ties together, is that the words that are spoken to a patient, the words spoken from an assistant to a doctor and back, and especially words that are spoken when we don't think the patient can hear, all of those have to be, to be focused on. You know, I think establishing a certain word protocol is great because as we talk about bias, we, we want to make sure that the words we use have a consistent message in our communication. We want to make sure that we respect different ideas or perspectives, and we're always building upon trust. Trust is important. So I know you're not discussing the actual shade selection techniques today, but what aspects do you think are important to mention? Well, first and foremost, you know, we want to make sure that the room or operatory where the selection is going to be made is set up with all the tools and aids prior to the patient showing up. Uh, there's an awful lot of material on room lighting. And yeah, I guess it's kind of important to have good room lighting. And, you know, I personally like, you know, a, a, a color-coded type of light, but the reality is it's the flash of the camera that's gonna control the lighting the most. Natural light, I wanna avoid because it's not repeatable. And when we, uh, speaking of lighting, we wanna make sure that every time we take a photograph or, or we're gonna be, examining something, we're using a consistent, repeatable light source. Uh, the other thing that's equally important are the angles, positions, shadows, reflections. This is all relative to the angle of the shade tab to the patient, to the camera, or to the viewer. Uh, it has nothing to do with actually seeing a correct or incorrect color. It's more about making sure that we're seeing things on the same plane that we should see them. Uh, there's been volumes of materials written on how to take a shade, and I, I strongly recommend people to certain YouTube channels and, uh, and books and journals for that. That's not something I focus on. Okay. Uh, you mentioned earlier that productivity can be increased by selecting a color match. Let's talk about that. Everyone's interested in being more productive. I am. <laughs> well, um, it's, a, it's a great question for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think a lot, of, a lot of dental offices underplay the value and what can be gotten out of, of a shade selection. Any point of contact with a patient is an opportunity for something, whether it's building trust or, or restorative uh, possibilities. So let's say there's about five restorative co-discovery possibilities beyond selecting a color. Um, that a color matcher would be responsible for, for noticing. So there's the wanted material uh, or wanted restorative work. There's the needed work that was agreed to but never scheduled. Uh, potential failing existing restorations, future possibilities. So a good color matcher goes through these and that's what's nice about uh, having that photo for the patient to see at the same time or a mirror. And their responsibility is to contact the doctor immediately of what they saw. They're not there to, to sell anything to recommend any kind of treatment. Their only purpose is to let the doctor know, this is very similar to a hygienist. This is what I saw while we were doing this procedure, right on the spot. Right, uh, I wanna switch gears to training. What are your thoughts about this? Because it's been my experience after 43 years in dentistry that the team really wants to expand their capabilities. They wanna be trained, they wanna be challenged. 
Uh, so let's talk about that. Well, the goal of training is that the material or information is learned, retained, and able to be passed on to someone else. When someone can actually teach someone something they know, we know they've been trained, quote unquote. Um, so first and foremost, the instructor or facilitator of training a task needs to have personal experience in that, in that process. And, and I would make that statement almost across the board in anything in life. If, if somebody's giving you theoretical information or information they got from a study, I'm not as interested as someone that tells me, this is what I've learned over 20, 30, 40, 50 years of doing something they always get my attention uh, uh, sooner. And I think when we start talking about this type of training and efficiencies, it should be someone that's, uh, that's experienced. Um, it needs to be executed in a proven method. What's the most proven method we've ever heard of? It's the OJT program, on-the-job training. And, uh, and that, I, I think, is, uh, is critical also to how the training can be designed. I guess that springs to mind another question. Uh, how is this possible during a busy work day in a dental office? You know what they're like. You, you visit, your, I know you visited your clients. Well, it seen me in the day, but you know, it's like boom, boom, boom in, uh, you know, in our day to day. So how do you do that? Well, it was the first obstacle I ran into uh, when I started trying to teach some of this out in the field. Uh, disrupting or interrupting a, a workday is out of the question. So I, I, in my research, there's, there's many techniques. Uh, there's surgical techniques that have been proven in the field to work. Uh, one would be, the, if anyone's familiar with the Peyton technique of, uh, of training, he was a, a doctor that went down to South America and he would he had all these young doctors, he had 500 patients and they, he had to teach them on the spot. So he developed a real quick four step. And so we, we look at that. There's the learn, see, practice, prove, do, maintain technique that uh, a lot of folks are familiar with. Uh, the Parento technique, the Dreyfus technique. So after studying all these and experimenting with them, you know, there's ways to, to do this type of training. You know, the surreal effect is, is probably the most important thing and that's that we remember the first half and the last half and we forget mostly what's in the middle so training needs to be done really in a compact fashion uh one i'll give you a perfect example that probably illustrates this best oftentimes uh staff uh, or doctors are already photo photoing their patients and sending them to the lab so after we've had our initial meeting or, or two I'll, I'll just sell them Set, copy me in on those photos or send them send me a copy I often will recrop them, maybe attach a, a similar photo that's done a little bit differently or better. I'll put some commentary and send it back and, and just say, look, when you get a chance later today, tonight, uh, you know, give me a call, send a text and, I'll, uh, and we can go through this. And again, even that level of training or coaching, five minutes, it's amazing what can be learned. I mean, I've seen incredible results in two weeks uh, of this type of photo texting of, of just pictures because it's live action stuff and it doesn't interrupt uh, the workday at all. You know, I guess I would, I would have to say that the cost of training is not the purchase of the product, the material or, or, or the system, the service. It's really identifying the employee who wants to learn 
and then investing in them, which is kind of how you started this question. I agree with you. All right. Uh, do you do any uh, didactic well, training? Well, let's elaborate on that. Yes. Yeah. Before we get into anything further, often I'm asked, well, okay, how do I know, how do I identify my employees? You know, I should be investing in. The best way to do that is a short little survey of some of the tasks and procedures that you know are available to you. You sure don't want to ask somebody a, que a question that you don't have the answer to. So uh, if one of the questions is, would you like to learn about taking shades? And you could use normal terminology to ask that question. It could be someone that's never done it or someone is doing it. But if an employee says, yes, I really want to learn more, identifying that person, you have a much better chance of them learning faster and better than anyone else in the office. And you have a much better chance of getting your bang for your buck too. So I think that survey in-house is really important. And when it comes to competencies, you know, there's the novice, there's proficient. Not everybody needs to aspire to be the best at this particular task. If a dentist was to be able to find one employee that could become a good shade matcher, and let's say they employed 15, 20, 30, 50 people, doesn't matter. If they found one, they would increase productivity and they would reduce the amount of adjustments of the final restoration. That, that I can guarantee. You know, our biggest barrier over the years has always been who wants to pick up a 35 millimeter camera, whether it was film in the old days or slides, digital today, it was always very scary. No one wanted to hold the camera and be responsible for it. So that's gonna kind of launch us into my next question. Uh, how do you choose the appropriate camera or device for uh, taking these color photos and then transmitting them to the laboratory? Well, first I'd say, again, from my own personal experience, the folks with the really elaborate cameras oftentimes fall into a few categories. Uh, they're photo hobbyists. They just love photography. Uh, often they've been to some program that has, you know, where an organization has told them how important the camera is and all these accessories that need to be purchased. And they're not wrong. I think the, the dentist or who's listening to the program might be missing the real message. If you're doing complex treatment planning and you're doing sophisticated before and after photos, often when you do a very large case, you may want to deliver a final framed photograph. Okay. Uh, if you're certain social media, uh, and I would say website design. Sometimes that DSLR uh, or mirrorless, it's just gonna give you that extra, extra level. But when it comes to taking a photo for a color selection that you're gonna send to a dental lab colorist, the smartphone technology is so far advanced that it is hands down my first and just about my only choice some of the point and shoots, I might, I, I would say, yeah, there's room for those, but this, the, so I would say like if it's Apple, iPhone 11 Pro or newer. Uh, the other thing about uh, using a smartphone is that um, Apple to Apple devices are automatically encrypted. So you're covered there, but even encryption has come a long way. Uh, sometimes I carry with me on my keychain uh, a, a little USB drive and I'll, I'll 
put the photos that I've just taken with my phone on there and transfer them to the doctor's computer, erase them out of my phone right in front of the patient. And they know that, uh, that I've, I've, uh, that their, their privacy has not been, uh, violated at all. Right. Uh, well, what I love about a smartphone is the pictures are wonderful. One of my patients is traveling through India with her husband right now. And every day I get an array of photos, sometimes up to 40. And each one of those could be in National Geographic. I mean, they're right. gorgeous. Uh, some people may disagree with that. What I like about the smartphone when we started talking about this interview is that, what, everyone has one, right? I have two. And I'm just going to... Because of this podcast, I'm going to upgrade the office one to a higher level. And uh, yeah, I might just put my sophisticated Nikon in the closet for a while. Uh, I'm a photographer. So when we were talking about this, I'm thinking, well, I've been using cameras since the 70s. Okay, even before that. Uh, but not everyone shares my passion for that. Smartphones, I'm really big on. I'm really high on those because everyone has one. Uh, any downsides to them? I mean, if someone well, pushes, pushes back, you know, what would be your selling point to a team? Well, all right. So let's take it a little further. The downside, unquestionably, is the distortion factor. Um, if you look closely at your photos, your finished photos, oftentimes you'll see that the head is really big or a nose is really big. Uh, I had it pointed out to me when I was giving a lecture once, and I thought that the color quality was great. I just didn't realize how distorted things were because I was using uh, my smartphone at the time. So yeah, I have a brand new digital DSLR. Unfortunately, I spent a lot of money and I've used it twice because at the exact same time I bought that, I started learning more about the smartphone. So yeah, typically there's several settings you can adjust on the smartphone uh, away from the manufacturer settings that are going to improve the quality. But there's also some new apps coming down the road that uh, we're going to see very shortly geared directly to shape taking and um, using a smartphone. And that's what's really exciting about this because as I said earlier, all the technique and all the scientific information about color theory and color sciences has become completely irrelevant to me. You know, I, I don't talk about the color wheel. I don't talk about hue, chroma, and value in the same respect as how we used to talk about it. I want to get into the psychological, uh, even the emotional aspect of it because a good color matcher loves what they're doing. They get excited with the patient. I remember in the last couple of years that I was taking uh, uh, color matches in the lab, I would typically sell a couple hundred crowns a year just by quizzing a patient. And ultimately, I just said to the office, look, at, if it's a patient that is miserable and nobody wants to see or talk to, that's the one I want to meet. Um, because that's where color matches ultimately end up. They really get a passion for this. And, and, and I will just leave you with this last thought on cameras in general. <clears throat> a photo is, a, is an image rendition of an object. It will never be a reproduction. It's a rendition. The cones in the human eye, <clears throat> at last count, were upwards of 10 million colors. I think they, saw, they thought they could see. I mean, camera technology tries to match our cones. It doesn't have the same crossover levels that a human eye has. So I'm not, I don't think we're going to get to a point where we can take a shade tab and put it next to a photograph.
Got it. Plus, my last comment here is that I read a lot of photography magazines. Nikon, which is my, have been, has been my brand for the last 45 years, is discontinuing digital SLRs. Uh, they're going to mirrorless. I think uh, uh, Canon is on their heels. They're going to be phased out. Everyone wants the mirrorless camera, and that's where it's going. But uh, I agree, the smartphone's the way to go. And I'm going to probably this weekend upgrade mine. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. On the basis of our conversation. Super. I'd love to talk to you sometime about that too. We will. But thanks well, for having is, me, Wes. It was a pleasure. Yeah, this has been fun. It's always great when we collaborate and we have over many years. Uh, for anyone uh, interested in implants, Bob was my first contact with a real implant uh, person, uh, professional, back in the early 90s when we actually had our own study club and uh, we would fly our speakers in on the weekends. It was very revolutionary back then, wasn't it? Oh, it sure was. It was that was a lot of fun too. Yeah, we were a decade ahead of everyone. So, uh, Bob, for the listeners uh, who would like to contact you, talk, talk more about team training for color selection. Uh, you know, A to Z. Uh, tell us about your new company and how to reach you. Well, the new company is called Design for Perfection, a collaboration in dental artistry. Uh, I can be reached at R Ingrasio, I N G R A. SSIO at designforperfection.com. I use a text line for communications, quick communications or photos, whatever, and that is 585 308 2177. And anybody could reach out and text me. We, the services we offer are mostly around the technical aspects of, of dentistry. And we've been able to do a lot of things uh, virtually and remote, which is kind of cool. Um, so if anybody wants to ask me a question or elaborate on what we talked about, or better yet, if someone disagrees with some of my comments, I'd love to hear it because maybe it's something I need to learn. <laughs> Bob, it was a lot of fun this morning. Thanks for sharing your many years of, of uh, expertise and knowledge with us. I really appreciate it. Always great to talk to you, Wes. Thank you. Take care. Bye.